In 1950, a man named Timothy Evans of South Wales is charged with the murder of his young wife and baby daughter. He told the court he was innocent, but nobody believed him. He told the court the man responsible was John Reginald Christie, a man who testified against him for the prosecution, ultimately leading to his death. Three years later, police would discover that John Christie himself was in fact a serial killer who confessed to not only murdering Tim Evans' wife, but his own. This case was a judicial fiasco in the Crown Court, and it would take 37 years to set it straight. This is the story of John Reginald Christie, murder at number 10, Rillington Place, Notting Hill. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our friends in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Nice. Yeah. Boye Malamu, Boye Malamu, Boye Malamu. I bet it's warmer there than it is here today. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Good Lord. I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, wherever you are listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. You can listen to Hitch to Homicide on just about any podcast platform. Yeah. Also... Don't forget to join the in-laws and outlaws. We've been getting lots of new members. Welcome to everybody. We're all crazy here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an insane posse. It is. Well, this case is older. You know, I like a good historic case. But I was in London not too long ago, was in Notting Hill. Mm -hmm. This building doesn't exist anymore, but by golly, I would have gone to exactly where it used to be. It's not even called Rillington Place anymore. But uh, such a beautiful area. And when I saw this case, I was like, ooh, this is really intriguing. I want to do this one. Nice. Before we get started, let me thank some sources. Radio Times, The Murders, Myths, and Reality of 10 Rimmington Place by John Kernow. Wales Online, All That's Interesting, The Watford Observer, Murderpedia, and Real Crime. All right. Well, you ready? I am. Let's do it. John Reginald Halliday Christie, that's a mouthful, was born on April 8th, 1899 in Yorkshire, England. Okay. His friends and family like to call him Reg or Reggie. Right. But most sources I found called him John. So I'm going to call him John for today's story. Big John. John was six of seven children. He's the youngest boy. Okay. He had five older sisters. Hmm. Can't think of anything worse for a young man. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of estrogen. That's a lot of girls. But these girls like to boss him around. And he was also beaten as a child by his dad Hmm. and his mother. And then apparently his four older sisters used to join in as well. <laughs> it was a family affair. Yeah, they. I think that he was just a kid who was beaten. Wow. But he was also a kid who followed orders in school. He sang in the choir. He was a loner a little bit at school, but he was also really good at math. He loved the British Boy Scouts. And he was actually a King Scout, hmm. which would be like being an Eagle Scout in the United States. Wow. It's the highest level you can reach. Right. Okay. And he very much liked his uniform. Hmm. He wore it even when it wasn't Scout Day. <laughs> like he wore this uniform all the time. <laughs> which means he got beat up at school, too. <laughs> well, we're coming to that. So okay. hang on. All right. Hang on. All right. But he liked the uniform because he thought it gave him a sense of authority. Now, when John is eight, his grandfather dies. And when he sees him in the casket, it was really life-changing for John because he was he was really afraid of his grandfather. And now that his grandfather is dead and in this box, he realizes he's nothing more than a body. Mm. And after that, John had a fascination 
with corpses. Okay, let me guess. This is probably not a good thing. That's called foreshadowing. Which leads me to this. Exactly. (laughs) Now, in his teenage years, sex was a bit of a blunder for John. In his first sexual encounter, he was with a girl who had more experience than he did. Okay. And when John couldn't perform, he couldn't get the sails up. (laughs) Limber timber, as they called it. (laughs) The girl tells all her friends, who tells even more friends, who tells Uh, even more friends. And everybody he knew, they started calling him Can't Do It Christy and Reggie No Dick. (laughs) I'm sorry. I thought... I thought I couldn't even get I could barely get through it. After the limber timber, I could barely get through it. (laughs) I thought... Being called, I'd rather be dead than red on the head was bad. Yeah, that's nothing compared to that. Yeah, it's harsh, right? Yeah. Ooh, baby. And it was from this point that many psychologists today say John formed a hatred and also a dread of women. And I, when I read that, I thought, I think there are probably a lot of men <laughs> who have a hatred and a dread of women. They like them, love them, and want to <laughs> strangle them at the same time. In, in Not in the literal sense, uh, but, you know, yes. <laughs> but because of this, he's only able to perform sexually when he's in complete control. He said, quote, all my life, I've had this fear of appearing a ridiculous lover. Wow. End quote. Yeah, that's not a good thing. After school, John worked as a cinema operator, and in 1918, when he's 19 years old, he enlists in the British Army during World War I, where he joined the 52nd Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire Regiment as an infantryman. <laughs> wow. That was a mouthful. Gee, many Christmas. So what do you do, son? <laughs> well, if you have an hour? Yeah. Well, while he's a soldier, he's injured in a mustard gas attack. And taken to a military hospital for recovery. He's later going to say that it left him blind and mute for three years. He's a little bit of a hypochondriac. Yeah, a little bit. But there are no records of this. And he was later discharged and sent back to duty. So he wasn't blind and and mute for three years. But his vocal cords were damaged. And he never spoke above a whisper for the rest of his life. Really? Yeah. He should have just been a corporal clinger and wore a dress. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he was trying to get a section... <laughs> Nine. <laughs> I thought it was a section eight. Oh, maybe it is. <laughs> I don't know. He's not trying to get out by being crazy. Yeah. One of those sections. The problem is everybody else is going to think John's crazy, but John doesn't think he's crazy. And yeah. that's... Herein lies the problem. Right, right. In 1919, John goes home, and this is when he meets Ethel Simpson. Okay. Now, there were so many sources that talked about Ethel's looks. I'm just going to leave that. It just felt really mean and ugly. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Ethel, okay? <laughs> These two are married on May 10th, 1920, and they moved to Halifax. John's impotence problem continues to plague him hmm. and his marriage bed. And by this time, he could only have sex with sex workers. Really? This is something he will do before and after their marriage. Okay. John goes to work for the post office, but he's stealing postal orders. And I looked this up. Postal orders are just what it sounds like. It's like the early day Amazon because only the wealthy people had bank accounts. So postal orders was a way to get food and goods without a bank account. You ordered them, they came in the mail. Oh, wow. But John's stealing them. So somebody's ordering a can of coffee and John's walking out the door with it. (laughs) Well, and John definitely wasn't chock full of nuts. (laughs) No. (laughs) Sorry. That was lame. (laughs) He was limber timber. (laughs) Sorry. It's going to come. It's going to keep coming back up again. And just remember, I'm 12 years old. Yeah. And I'm a 14 year old boy. (laughs) But when he's caught stealing these postal orders in 1921, he goes to prison for three months. Then in 1923, he's convicted of obtaining money on false pretenses. And also in 1923, he's convicted of violent conduct. Now, in the middle of all of this in 1923, Ethel says, I'm I'm tapping out. I'm done. I'm going to live with my mother in Sheffield. 
And she does, but she doesn't get a divorce. Okay. Then in 1929, John actually hit a sex worker, Maud Cole, over the head with a cricket bat and got six months back in the slammer or the chokey, as I read it was called. The chokey? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. In the chokey. Not the pokey, but the chokey. The chokey, yeah. (laughs) I even looked up the pronunciation when I saw it. All right. In 1933, he serves three months for stealing a car from a priest. (laughs) Wow. That's bad karma right there. It sure is. If you were trying to get the Lord on your side, that was not the way to (laughs) do it. Yeah, bad start. But nine years pass. And during all this time, John is living with other criminals. He's in and out of jail. He's frequenting the company of sex workers. He'll get a job. He loses a job. And by this time, he has moved to London. Okay. And I made me think of uh, Anchorman when he's singing to <laughs> Baxter. Yeah, Baxter. Take you to foggy London, London town. town. <laughs> <laughs> when World War II starts, John thinks maybe he needs to clean up his act. You think? He wanted people to respect him. Mm. And in 1933, he goes back to Ethel and begs her forgiveness. <laughs> and she does forgive him. Wow. Soon after, Ethel becomes pregnant. So things must have been going way better than they were when they first got married. Yeah, the wind must have been blowing and the sails inflated. The sails were up. Yeah. But unfortunately, she will have a miscarriage. And this is going to weigh on their marriage. Okay. Four years later in 1937, John and Ethel moved to the Ladbroke neighborhood of Notting Hill, settling into a Victorian house at 10 Rillington Place. It's summertime, and they take the top two rooms in the building, and they will later move to the bottom flat. All right. And his new neighbors don't know of all his convictions for stealing the priest's car and hitting the sex worker with a cricket bat, and he wants to be respected by these people. And one day, he sees an ad in the paper for the police reserve, and he applies for the war police reserve leaving off his resume that he had four (laughs) convictions and they do not check his record and he gets a job. I guess records weren't that big of a deal back then. Well, I'm sure they were all, you know, handwritten. Oh, yeah. But nobody looked him him up at the police station. You would think that someone would be like, oh, yeah, there he is. But I'm making the assumption that he committed his crimes in Halifax and now he's moved to London and living in Notting Hill. And this was pre-IMAC. This was pre-everything. <laughs> yeah. But now John's in uniform as a special constable at Harrow Road Police Station. All right. And his newfound authority and his new uniform, uh, which he loves, yep. allows him to chat up lots of people, including young women. Mm. John has developed this sexual deviance with women. And when Ethel would visit her mother in Sheffield, John would partake and pay for activities with sex workers Hmm. at night. Wow. And now he had the power over this community with his role. And he also had power over these sex workers because the sex workers would have sex with him and then be like, hey, look, John, this one's on the house if you just look the other way while I work. Sure. So it's a win-win for him. Free sex. He gets to be in charge in his uniforms and the girls aren't taken off to jail. Right. Now, there were people who said that he was so into his job as a special constable, his neighbors described him as the Himmler of Rillington Place. Ooh, that's that's a really bad reference. If you don't know who Heinrich Himmler is, uh, he was the commander of the genocide of the Jews, yeah. who once said, quote, the best political weapon is the weapon of terror. Yep. Cruelty commands respect. Men may hate us, but we don't ask for their love, only their fear, mm. end quote. Wow. So that's John in a nutshell. Yeah. He has several affairs while he's married to Ethel, including one with the woman he worked with at the police station. And when her husband finds out about the affair, he confronts John and beats the shit out of him. (laughs) Beats him to a pulp. Oh, wow. Rillington Place is a cul-de-sac. And at the time, it was a rat-infested slum of a neighborhood. 
Notting Hill was a rat-infested slum of a neighborhood. Really? Not like the movie? Not like the movie. (laughs) And of course, today, Notting Hill is a very posh address. Yeah. It's just not that fancy until after the 1960s and 70s. Okay. It's not posh until after that, according to my sources. Yeah, it's kind of like a lot of cities, you know, older cities that had rundown sections that all of a sudden are built back up and they become like expensive real estate. Gentrification. Yeah. It's happening everywhere. Yep. But 10 Rillington Place was three stories high with a flat on each floor and a communal wash house and a small garden. Okay. At the time, it's post-World War II. There are lots of widows and girlfriends of dead soldiers, and these, these women are just trying to survive and make ends meet. Sure. And they were beginning to turn to sex work in order to do this. Mm. And I read in one source, mostly having sex with American servicemen. Yeah. yeah. God bless the USA. Yeah. <laughs> We're just doing our part. Apparently, <laughs> post-World War II, just adding to the economy. Yeah. But because there wasn't a lot of birth control at the time, there were lots and lots of unwanted pregnancies. Mm. And Ethel and John were making money performing illegal abortions Uh. in their kitchen in the flat. Wow. They would tell this potential mother that they could perform the abortion right there in the kitchen. They ran a hose from the gas stove to a chair where they had the woman sit. They would put her to sleep with this petroleum gas from the stove. They're poisoning them. Good grief. And then they'd perform the abortion. And when they woke up, they'd send them on their way. Wow. And I read in one source, they somehow covered the smell of the gas with balsam. Okay. What's balsam? Like cedar, fir trees. Smells like Christmas. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Merry Christmas. Like Christmas in a cup. (laughs) It's one of my favorite movies. In 1943, Ethel decides to take a trip to see her sister, Lily Bartle, and her husband, Arthur, at 61 Hindi House Lane in Sheffield. It's actually just one house away from Henry Simpson, who is Ethel's brother, who she lived with for a little bit while she and John were apart during those nine years. And when Ethel leaves, Mm -hmm. when the cat's away... Big John's going to play. The mice are going to (laughs) play, and apparently it's a rat-infested area. So, it's now August 1943. Ruth Marguerite Christine Fürst is a half-Jewish refugee living and working in London. She came to England from Austria to train as a nurse. Hmm. She also worked at a munitions factory in Mayfair and has been described by lots of people, lots of sources, as a part-time sex worker. Again, mostly to American soldiers. And according to one source, Ruth is a regular visitor to the Christie house. Hmm. Now, John is actually paying Ruth for sex. She's not a trade-out. And while Ruth is there having sex with John, she sees a telegram from Ethel saying, I'm coming home. Mm. And John realizes he doesn't want Ruth telling anyone that he has a wife, that he's having sex with a sex worker. He doesn't want the rumors. He doesn't want anything getting back to Ethel. Because remember, when he's a teenager and can't perform, one girl told another girl who told another girl. And he doesn't want the same thing to happen with Ruth. He doesn't want Ruth telling the other sex workers, that he has a wife named Ethel. Ah, okay. But it seems to me that Ethel's pretty well known among the sex workers for her ability to perform illegal abortions. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Regardless, he's got it in his head that Ruth has got to go. Okay. And he needs to get rid of her. Mm. So the last time Ruth and John have sex, during the actual sex act itself, he decided on impulse to strangle Ruth with a rope. (sighs) When he was finished with her, and in more ways than one, he puts her body under the floorboards. Okay. So he has sex with her. He kills her, strangles her. He has sex with her dead body. Then he puts her under the floorboards because remember, they have the first floor flat. Uh. So it's just dirt underneath these floorboards. 
Yeah, but that's going to just take. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, Quote, she was completely naked. I tried to put her clothes back on her. She had a leopard skin coat, and I wrapped this around her. I took her from the bedroom and put her under the floorboards, end quote. John wasn't very smart. Actually, John is smart. He has a pretty high IQ. Believe it or not, he has a pretty high IQ. Okay, let me rephrase that. John's not very savvy. (laughs) <laughs> John's letting his little head think for the big head. Yeah. Wow. Later, John's going to move her body to the garden behind 10 Rillington Place. Hmm. And he really likes having this kind of control. It turned him on. And now he's he's sort of turned into a monster. This monster is born. Wow. It was such a thrill. And he wanted more. Jeez. He's given up his job, actually, as the special constable, and now he's working at the Ultra Electric Limited in Acton as a driver. So he left police service in December of 1943. But it's here at Ultra Electric Limited that he meets Muriel Eady. Okay. Muriel came from a really nice family. She was not in any way, shape, or form a sex worker. But she was considered a spinster. Want to know why? Why? Because she was 30. (laughs) She's 30 years old and they called her a spinster. Wow. We've come a long way, ladies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because this is what, around 1940 or something like that? We're post-World War II at this point. Okay, so past 1944. Yeah. Okay, so people weren't living as long as we do today. Obviously not, yeah. And... Everyone was getting married, like, in their early 20s. and At 17. At seven, yeah. <laughs> right out of school, get married. 30-something girls, you go. You, <laughs> you do that career. You do you. Yeah. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Be a proud spinster. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but John and Muriel, they see each other on the regular in the canteen. They're in the break room together where they're having lunch. Okay. And she begins to trust John. And she had a problem with asthma, post-nasal drip. She had a stuffy nose, congestion in her lungs. And John says, I can cure that because I have a breathing device that I have at home. Mm. So she comes to visit him on October 7th, 1943. Mm. He sets her in a chair, puts a mask on her face. It's connected to his gas stove. Oh, jeez. He treats her just like Ethel treats the sex workers who come in for abortions. When she's unconscious, he can control her better. And that's what he likes, control. Mm. If she's unconscious, she can't have an opinion about him. She can't fight him. Right. When Muriel is dead, he then has sex with her dead body. This is what excited him. It was a release for him. It was the only way he could climax because he could only do this with sex workers. He couldn't do it with his wife or with Muriel because mm-hmm. she's not a sex worker. Right. So he had to kill her first. Jeez. By 1947, he has both Ruth and Muriel buried in the garden behind 10 Rillington Place. And the thing about Ruth and Muriel both, nobody knew that either one of them were going to John's flat. Mm. So nobody ever suspected that he was a part of anything. Sure. And this made him feel really powerful and it meant he could kill again. And it wouldn't take long. Oh, no. Meet Timothy John Evans. He's born in South Wales. When he's nine years old, he has an injury to his foot, which led to this chronic disability that required all these visits to the hospital. And because of that, because he was in and out of the hospital so much, he missed a lot of school. And because he missed a lot of school, he could barely read and write. Mm. But most people said he was a mischievous kid. But he was pretty good-natured and harmless. His parents divorced. He was mostly brought up by his grandmother, who had a hard time controlling him. (laughs) But above all, he had a reputation as a person who fantasized a lot. And in adulthood, he started drinking heavily and fantasizing and lying, and he would also become violent. According to his mother, quote, he was pretty rough at times. Sometimes he used to wander and he was a bit rough as everybody knows he was backward. If he didn't get his own way when he was a child, he used to kick and scream. And if he didn't want to go, he wouldn't go, end quote. It sounds like our dog. (laughs) It sounds just like Scotty. (laughs) Yes. But after working in the Merthyr coal mines, 
Tim moves to London in 1939 to live with his mother and her second husband. And while living in London, he liked to tell people elaborate stories. Okay. Lies. Fantasy world, right? Okay, okay. One of the things he would do would be to switch back and forth between a Welsh accent and a London accent because he wanted to fit in in London. Mm. And he thought if he had a Welsh accent, he wasn't going to fit in. Right. He also had a lot of low self-esteem issues, which was part of the reason he was fantasizing all the time and living in his own little world. Yeah. No, no I get it. I live in my own little world, but but they know me there, so it's okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you, do, you do live in your own little world. <laughs> there was some mental illness in his family, and his grandfather was said to have beaten his grandmother. Mm. Tim had a criminal record. He was convicted of theft in 1946. Then in January of 1947, he met... Beryl Thorley. Beryl? Just like Meryl, but with a B. Huh, interesting. Beryl Thorley. Okay. Beryl is five years younger than him, and a year later, these two are married in September of the same year, and they quickly got pregnant. Hmm. They needed a larger place to live than where they were at 11 St. Mark's Road, and so on March 24th, 1948, they moved into the top flat at 10 Rillington Place, where Ethel and John Christie are now their new neighbors. Mm. Beryl Susanna Evans, Tim's new wife, is born in Lewisham on September 19, 1929. She was very intelligent. She was vivacious. She attended night school to become a skilled secretary. She had a really good job as a telephone operator at a hotel in London. But she's going to give this up when she becomes a mother. Now, lots of things are written about this young couple's marriage. One source said that she had something of a flirtation going on with a man during the time that she worked at a news agent's shop, which provided a very violent reaction from her husband, Tim. Tim showed up at her place of work, loses his mind. There's a violent confrontation. She is fired. Mm. And there are even rumors that Tim thought her unborn baby wasn't even his. Oh, wow. But when this young couple moves into 10 Rillington Place, John is all up in their business. (laughs) Tim is looking for work in London. So he begins working as a van driver. But that's not the point. John is not interested in Tim. He's interested in Beryl. Of course. Tim and Beryl have their baby on October 10th, 1948, and they name her Geraldine. Hmm. But his really tight living quarters in this tiny little flat on the top floor with the three of them. Right. And then on top of this, she gets pregnant right away again with baby number two. Okay. Now, they're already having a hard time making ends meet because Tim's only making, I read, seven pounds a week. Gee whiz. And these two argued a lot over money, over being on top of each other, over the baby crying. Right. And everyone who lived nearby knew it. (laughs) Oh, wow. Because they were loud. They were a bit expressive. They were very expressive. (laughs) Then a friend of Beryl's, Lucy Endicott, came to stay. She ended up sleeping with Beryl while Tim slept on the floor. Lucy had had a very short-lived affair with Tim, adding to the already worsening marital problems between him and his (laughs) wife, Beryl. I was going to say, how much more can you throw on this fire? I know. I mean, it's her good friend, and he slept with her. Wow. She said there were numerous accounts of violent arguments between the Evanses. Mm -hmm. She also later said, this is Lucy, her friend, also said that she didn't have a thing with Tim, but she's going to later say that he hated his mother, quote, like poison, end quote, because she always adopted Beryl's side in an argument. Mm. She will say that Tim was pursuing her. She had ended any involvement with him after only one night and returned to her mother due to his very violent temper. Wow. Lucy leaves a note behind when she goes for Beryl, Mm -hmm. and it just basically says, he is way too violent. Girl, you need to get out. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) Did they say girl back then? (laughs) Girl, pack your stuff and get out. He is no good. That's what Lucy is saying. (laughs) And when Tim reads it, he said, quote, I would smash her up or run her over with my lorry, end quote. Wow. He also said that he was ready to throw Beryl out of the window. Gee whiz. Sounds like a really stand-up nice guy. Yeah. 
Now, because this marriage is going so great, (laughs) Beryl didn't want another child, and she wanted an abortion. And she didn't care who knew about it either. She was so angry with her husband, she told everybody she knew, including the Christies, I don't want this baby. Mm. And John tells Meryl, quote, I can solve this problem for you, end quote. Wow. And according to Ethel, on November 8th, 1949, Tim leaves for work, but not before telling Ethel to tell John it's okay to perform the abortion. Mm. Because when she first talked about it, Tim was saying, I don't want you to have an abortion. Right. And she's basically saying, my body, my decision. Right. But when Tim came home from work, John tells him, look, I tried to perform the abortion, but Beryl died during the procedure. What? Yeah. And he looks at him and says, your wife's dead, and it's your fault because you told her to have the abortion. Oh, man. Yeah. And he says this to Tim, who, remember, he can barely read or write, and he pretty much has a very low IQ. He says, look it, sure, I'll go to prison for the abortion, but so will you. Mm. So don't tell. Wow. They dump Beryl's body in an empty room at 10 Rillington Place, and John tells Tim, okay, here's the deal. I'll get rid of the body. I'll dump her in a manhole outside. But what about the baby? Tim's like, I've got a baby. Geraldine's 14 months old. And John tells Tim, quote, I've got a childless couple in East Acton who will take Geraldine. You can go back and see her eventually, end quote. Wow. John tells Tim, you got to get out of London, dude. You got to get out now. And you need to sell all your furniture and go. And Tim does as he is told. Wow. Because like you said, he's not very bright. He's not very bright. Yeah. He goes back to Wales, but even when he gets home to South Wales, people are like, where's Beryl? Where's Geraldine? Where's your wife? Where's the baby? And he's going, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. By November 30th of 1948, Tim's guilty conscience takes him to the police station in Merthyr Tidville in South Wales. Hmm. Tim gives the police a statement saying, my wife died in an abortion I disposed of her down the manhole outside of 10 Rillington Place. So police go to Rillington Place in Notting Hill and they search this manhole. And the first thing they discover is that there's no way this one guy did this on his own because the manhole cover is so heavy, it takes like three guys Mm. to get it off. Okay. Not only that, when they do get inside the manhole, there's no body. So then Tim changes his story. He tells them that John Reginald Christie performed the abortion. Quote, I asked him how long she'd been dead. He said since three o'clock. Then he told me my wife's stomach had been septic poisoned, end quote. Okay. So police go back to Rillington Place. And this time they start knocking on doors. Sure. And they knock on the door of John and Ethel. And they both say in this united front... We don't know anything about an abortion. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah, of course they do. And the police are thinking, this nice middle-aged couple that looks perfectly respectable, their story has to be the real thing. Right. And Tim's already changed his story twice. Right. Yeah, Tim's no longer the one who is believable, right? Right. John tells police that Tim is an abusive alcoholic who likes to drink and he likes to beat his wife. But at this point, they all know that Beryl and the baby Geraldine are gone. So they launch this full-scale search around 10 Rillington Place. Right. What they find hidden behind a wood pile wrapped in a tablecloth in the wash house is what is left of Beryl and baby Geraldine. Both had been strangled. A man's tie was still around the baby's neck. man. The two of them had been dead for about three weeks. There was no indication that Beryl had tried to have an abortion, but she had been beaten and there were signs that she had been raped or sexually molested. Mm. So they're looking at Tim. Yeah. And remember, John used to work with the police as a constable. Yeah. So he knows their jargon. He could speak with them intelligently. And he tells police he thought the tie was similar to one he had seen around Tim Evans' neck. Mm. 
Tim goes to the morgue. He's completely shocked that Geraldine is dead because he was convinced that she was now with this nice couple from East Acton. Right. You know, it's like, I felt I feel terrible saying this, but it's almost like when you're a kid and your dog dies and your parents are like, oh, he went to live on a farm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you believed it. Right. And Tim was believing this. Right. But his wife and baby are dead. And the police start interrogating the heck fire out of Tim at the Notting Hill police station. And this is where Tim will change his story for... The third time. The third time. That's right. Wow. This time, under pressure and interrogation from police, he confesses to killing his wife and his daughter, Geraldine. He said he'd murdered Beryl in the morning and placed her in the wash house, then baby Geraldine when he got home from work, placing her in the wash house as well. But it's not possible for this to happen. Right. Because on the 8th of November, the day that they were both killed, there were workmen in the wash house all day long. Pretty hard to hide bodies in there while there are men in there working. Yeah. Yeah. And even though there's this obvious discrepancy, which needed investigating at the very least, Mm -hmm. Tim, the known liar and the man of low intelligence and possibly afraid to say anything against like an ex-special guy like John Christie. Right. He's charged with the murders. Wow. He admitted them to the police, but not to his mother. Quote, I didn't do it, ma'am. It was Christie. End quote. Wow. Now, these statements by Tim are written down by police. And remember, Tim can barely read or write. Mm -hmm. So his account was dictated to the police. And part of his confession is very much police talk. And part of it is very much Tim's jargon. But his initial statement that he gave in Wales is very faithful to the way that Tim actually spoke in his own vocabulary. And an example of this would be in Notting Hill, his confession said that, quote, she was incurring one debt after another, end quote. (laughs) Tim wasn't the kind of guy who would use the word incurring. incurring. Yeah. 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 Another one was, quote, I accused her of squandering money, end quote. (laughs) Again, squander is not a word Tim would have used. It's also said in this statement, quote, it started a terrific argument, end quote. (laughs) And looking back on it, there are all these people who have investigated this over the years who have said he would have said something like we had a bloody row. Yeah. And not, you know, it was an altercation or an argument. Right. The point is, when Tim is at the Notting Hill police station, he probably had absolutely no idea what he was saying or what he signed. Sure. And he was saying by signing it that this was the truth. Right. But at some point... When he is asked by the police if he is responsible for the murder of his wife and child, Tim allegedly said, quote, yes, yes. Hmm. And they charged Tim Evans with murder. Wow. On January 11th, 1950, Tim Evans goes to trial at the Old Bailey, charged with the murder of his baby girl, Geraldine. And at this point, he's taken back every single statement and professed to the police that John Christie was the one who killed his wife and baby. Right. But nobody's listening. And John is going to be a key witness in this trial. Now, when Tim goes to trial, the prosecution thinks he's going to put up a defense that he was provoked by his wife if he was charged in murdering her. Sure. And that charge might have spared him a death penalty. But if he's charged with murdering the baby, well, there's no defense and he's going to hang. And so that's why they only charged him with the murder of the baby. Gotcha. The prosecution produced four confessions of a backward illiterate who was interrogated mercilessly. Mm. The prosecution did not call the workmen who were in the wash house that day. Tim said he had taken the bodies of his wife and baby there, nor was there evidence which supported the prosecution's claim. He was actually at work that day, remember? Oh, yeah. John Christie testified against him. And he was a man who served it during World War One. Right. And he's this guy who was a, quote, special for the police, the special constable. And he's giving evidence against Tim, mm. who's already confessed. Wow. And John hadn't been in trouble for 17 years. So it was a little hard for the defense to say, look, he's a bad guy to begin with. Right. The prosecution says Tim Evans is the liar. He was just a guy who was blaming John to save his own skin. Mm. And the evidence against him is overwhelming. He had a fight with his wife. She's pregnant. They're poor. The Christies testified they heard this huge thud in the room above. 
The trial lasted only three days. The jury deliberated only 40 minutes before coming back and finding Tim Evans guilty of murder. Wow. He sentenced to death by hanging. And when John and Ethel are leaving the courtroom after this is announced that Tim's going to die, Tim's mother stands up and yells, murder, murder. Pointing at the Christie's? Yes. Oh, wow. And Ethel yells back, quote, don't you dare call my husband a murderer. He's a good man, end quote. Wow. Famous last words, Ethel. Yeah, yeah. John and Ethel go on vacation to Sheffield after the verdict, and Tim appeals his verdict with the House Secretary, but it goes nowhere. And on March 9th, 1950, Timothy Evans is hanged at the Pentonville prison by Albert Pierpoint, who is one of England's most famous long-serving hangmen. Wow. Tim professed his innocence right up to the point of his death, and the police are thinking... This case is closed. (laughs) This house is clean. Exactly. (laughs) When John and Ethel return from vacation, they get on with their lives. I mean, four people have been murdered in this flat. Two of them, the blame was put on Tim. Nobody suspected John. And two of them are in the garden. Wow. But there's a new landlord at Rillington Place. And he rented out all of the flats, including a flat to a Jamaican family. And by this time, John and Ethel were far from happy as a couple. I mean, they never had sex. He was with sex workers on and off. Right. And John is afraid, with all the rooms occupied, that someone might discover the bodies in the garden. Mm. And while he's getting antsy, he and Ethel start fighting. And John's feeling pretty invincible. I mean, not only was he not charged after murdering Marilyn the baby. Right. He's had this man hanged. Yeah. And I even read, you're not going to believe this, at one point, he went back to the garden and accidentally dug up a femur that either belonged to Rita or Muriel, and he used it to prop up a broken trellis in the garden. What? Police are going to be in and out of this garden, and nobody even notices this. Jeez. But this isn't a happy marriage between John and Ethel. Doesn't sound like it. John lost his job. Ethel's taking pills for her depression. Mother's a little helper. Yeah. And she's still doing illegal abortions out of her kitchen. Mm. And one time, she catches John sexually molesting one of the girls as they recover from the abortion. Wow. And she is so angry, Ethel threatens to call the police on him. Oh, really? Yeah. So even though he feels like he has authority, Ethel's really the one who has the upper hand right now. And he doesn't like that. And remember, he didn't like his sisters being over him either. Ethel is breathing down his neck. (laughs) So you know what that means. Yep. Ethel doesn't have long long to go on this earth. December 14th, 1952, John murders Ethel in their bed with a stocking. He strangles her to death. He does not rape her dead body like he's done all the others. Mm. After 32 years of marriage, he kills her, he wraps her in a blanket, and he puts her under the floorboards. Okay, all right. He leaves her there, and he is continually walking across his wife's dead body under his feet. Jeez. It's like the ultimate control that he has over her. I mean, he doesn't care enough for her. After 32 years, he's walking across her dead body. And when anybody said, where's Ethel? Well, Ethel had gone to Sheffield to see her sister who was ill. And he even told one of Ethel's friends that she was asking about her. And he sent gifts to relatives that were from Ethel (laughs) or from both of them. Wow. But as luck would have it, There's a robbery in their building at 10 Rillington Place. And policeman Leo Trevelyan knocks on the door. And John says, come on in. And Leo interviews him in the front room of the flat. And during this little chit-chat he has with him, he says, quote, what a terrible stink you've got going on in this house, (laughs) end quote. And John says, it's the Jamaican family up above It's their cooking. That's what's smelling up the flat. But Leo thinks, well, this is interesting because I've been to the other flats and they don't smell like this. Yeah, yeah. He thinks it's hinky. He thinks it's hinky while he's standing on top of Ethel's buried body underneath the floorboards. Wow. 
So John is getting past all of Ethel's friends with his excuses. He gets past the police. Nothing's going to keep him from murdering and performing necrophilia on even more females because his wife is gone. She was like the one thing that kept him from doing this. Meet Kathleen Malone. Kathleen actually knows John. He's had sex with her before. He takes her home when she's drunk. He strangled her and then he raped her dead body. He walks away, leaving her in this deck chair in the house before going to bed. (laughs) And the bodies are piling up. Yeah. He wakes up. He realizes he's got to do something with her body. So he puts her in an alcove on her back, basically folding her legs up in the air, like folding her up. (laughs) Kathleen was 26 years old. Wow. Next is Rita Nelson. She works at a local tea shop, and she's actually pregnant. Mm. She goes to John. He's later going to say that Rita met him outside of a pub and came on to him, and then he took her to his flat. But police think that she went to him so she could get an abortion. Mm. He gasses her, strangles her, and rapes her dead body. Wow. Then he puts her body with Kathleen's in the alcove in the kitchen. Mm. Rita Nelson was 25 years old. Wow. So without Ethel around, like I said, he's getting out of control. And he likes to pick the weak impala of the herd, women he knew would not be missed. Sure. Meet 26-year-old Hectorina McLennan. Hectorina, what a great name. I'm going to say her name a bunch because I like it so much. (laughs) Hectorina needed a place to live, and John hears that she's homeless, and he offers up his flat. His stinky, three-corpse-filled flat. Yeah. But Hectorina came with a plus one, her boyfriend, Alex Baker. It's getting really crowded at Tim really yeah. Tim Place. Yeah. Hectorina and Alex move in with John, but three days later, they decide, we're, we're going to leave. Yeah. <laughs> we can't take the smell. Yeah. But John does ask Hectorina to come by just one more time. Just come by and say hi one more time before you move away. And when she does, he strangled her and then he raped her dead body. Jeez. He takes Hectorina to the alcove, stacking her up with Kathleen and Rita. Oh, my God. Alex, the boyfriend, comes back to the flat looking for Hectorina because that was the last place she was going to be. He's expecting her to be there. And John tells him, yeah, she never turned up. She said she was coming, but she she never showed up. Wow. And Alex wants to search the house. So they do, but she's nowhere to be found. Because she's behind this secret alcove. Mm. John actually makes him a cup of tea to calm him down. They search the outside of the house and all the nearby streets. No Hectorina. Then for the next few days, Alex turns up every single day looking for her. Okay. And this is making John nervous because he's got all these piles of bodies in his house and it stinks. Yeah. So what does he do? He knows his luck is running out. And he's out of money. So he starts to sell his furniture to pay for his rent because he no longer has a job. Mm -hmm. Then he rents his flat to a couple. He sublets his place and tells them he's the landlord (laughs) and he lets them move in. And he gets four weeks worth of rent up front. Then he packed up everything he wanted. He sold the rest and he yeets on out of Notting Hill. Yeah. Poof. He's gone. (laughs) He's out of there. Eight murders, six bodies still on site. Wow. The real landlord finds out what's going on (laughs) and comes in and kicks out the tenants who had paid John up front. And while the flat is empty, the landlord allowed Beresford Brown to use the kitchen facilities in John and Ethel's old first floor flat. Okay. And Mr. Brown goes down there and he's like, this kind of smells. Maybe it needs a little bit of cleaning. So he decides he's going to clean up a little bit, and he decides he wants to fix a bracket for a shelf in the kitchen because he wanted a place to put his radio. Oh, oh. And that's when he finds that there's this false wall because he's trying to fix the shelf to it. And when he does, it's hollow behind it. Mm. And behind this wallpaper he peels away are three dead bodies. (sighs) Can you imagine finding that? Wow. Can you imagine the smell? Oh, my gosh. 
So police are called once again to 10 Rillington Place. They're looking at anything and everything now. They see the three girls in the alcove, Kathleen, Rita, and Hectorina. They find Ethel under the floor, mm. and then they start digging in the garden, and they find the other two girls, Ruth and Muriel. And let me tell you, only Muriel and Hectorina were ever reported missing. Wow. There's a citywide manhunt for John Reginald Christie. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, before John leaves town, he forges Ethel's name, cleans out her bank account, which had about 10 pounds in it, and he sells all of Ethel's jewelry. He goes to what they call a, quote, rodent house, end quote. It's a, is- it's a place for the down and out. He's sleeping in this huge room with just rows of beds. Ugh. Yeah, everybody slept in there together. Okay. And all I could think of was, good night, John boy. Night, John boy. <laughs> Not Marilyn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but John hasn't done anything to disguise himself either. And then he just starts drifting from place to place in and around London for the next 10 days. On March 31st, 1943, police stop a man on the embankment near Putney Bridge. The man's name? Well, he says, I'm John Waddington. But police are like, hold the phone. You look just like the dude we're looking for. And his name is John Reginald Christie. He goes with them quietly to the Putney police station. They accuse him of murdering Ethel. He says it was a mercy killing. What? He woke up and she was having a seizure and couldn't breathe. That's why he strangled and killed his wife. What a nice guy. And as far as the other bodies, well, that was all self-defense or by accident. He's the victim. He's the mercy killer. Wow. And there was no talk of necrophilia or gassing the women when he when he gives his statements. Yeah. And he says as far as Beryl was concerned, he helped her to commit suicide. <laughs> he says he never murdered the baby. Hmm. Now, he knows he's going to hang for these murders. So he distances himself and portrays himself as, wait for it insane. (laughs) He was very articulate. He phrased everything in his statements, picking and choosing what he wanted to give in the story and how he projected himself in the story. Officer Trevelyan, who was actually the officer who showed up that day and said, gee, it smells bad in here. He's actually guarding him in jail. And Trevelyan sat with him and chatted and John recognizes him. And he tells Officer Trevelyan, Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell them, meaning the girls, my wife wasn't there to do the abortions they wanted, and I had to keep them quiet. If they're dead, they can't talk about it. And he finally admits that he enjoyed having sex with dead bodies. He admits to being a necrophiliac. Wow. He's charged with the murder of four women, but the law said he could only be tried for one. And the prosecution decided they're going to try him for the murder of his wife Mm. because they think that's their best hope of a conviction. Sure. Now, you'd think that John would be ashamed of himself. Remember, he he liked being thought of as a man in charge, the uniform and all that. Right. Actually, he liked being a celebrity. Yeah. In jail, he followed his own stories in the newspapers. (laughs) On June 22nd, 1953, the trial begins and there's standing room only in court number one at the Old Bailey. It's chock-a-block full. Not a lot of entertainment back then. Nope. (laughs) The trial lasted four days. They asked him, are there more dead bodies other than the seven plus and one baby? And he replied, quote, I can't say exactly. I might have done, end quote. Wow. He takes the stand, but has no emotion when being questioned or talking about the dead girls. But when they get to Ethel, he (laughs) boo-hoos. Now, John's defense team had a psychiatrist who backed up this insanity plea. And the prosecutor said, I'll see your shrink and raise you one more. (laughs) And the two psychiatrists for the prosecution both said, after examining John, yeah, for sure there's something wrong. But he is not insane. Insane, right. He knew what he was doing. He calculated it all. He planned everything. He did admit to killing Beryl Evans, but not the baby. He wasn't going to take responsibility for the murder that Tim Evans had already hanged for. (laughs) He wasn't going to take responsibility for the death of Geraldine. And part of that is if they keep him out of the death penalty, he'll go to prison for the rest of his life. And you don't want to be a child killer in prison. No, no, that's 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 a bad thing. 
It takes the jury one hour and 20 minutes to deliberate. They came back with a verdict of guilty. There you go. He's sentenced to death by hanging for Ethel's murder. Good. While John is waiting to meet his maker, Tim Evans' mother writes to him in prison. She's begging him, admit that you killed the baby. Admit that you killed Geraldine. She wants to clear her son's name. Sure. He refused. And then he got so mad, he retracted his statement that he even killed Beryl in the first place. (laughs) And part of this I read is that serial killers don't want to admit to some of their victims, or sometimes they don't want to say where they're buried because that's their last little vestige of control. Sure. So John Christie committed the murders he confessed to, but he always threw lies into his accounts of these murders, and he gave lots of conflicting stories about the same murder— And even though the evidence said that he was having sex with these bodies, he was telling police that he didn't and then telling um, the guard that he was. Right. Police discovered that John had actually kept, wait for it, pubic hair from several of his victims as trophies. Oh, my. Wow. And he had four distinct clumps of hair, only one. One belonging to his wife matched the bodies of any of the victims that had been recovered. Jeez. Even if the two other clumps actually belonged to Ruth or Muriel, their bodies had decomposed in the earth, in the garden. Sure. And there was nothing really left but bones. Right. So it was hard to say if it was theirs or not. But he's still lying, and he's still covering it up. Right. On July 15th, 1953, John Reginald Christie is hanged at Pentonville Prison by Albert Pierpoint, the same man who hanged Tim Evans. Wow. And while preparing to be hanged, John Reginald Christie complained about having an itch on his nose. (laughs) And Pierpoint is supposed to have told him, quote, it won't bother you for long, end quote. (laughs) Good for him. Now, you might think, since he confessed to killing Beryl Evans in the beginning, that an inquiry needed to be made into seeing who actually did kill her. But police think that because John pled insanity during his trial, that he only confessed to the extra murder of Beryl in order to strengthen his own plea. And it was good for them because they'd already hanged her husband for the murder. Yeah. But the public and the press catch wind of all of this, and they don't want this to go unnoticed. Because if Tim Evans was hanged, He paid the price with his life for the murder of his daughter, and people wanted to know the truth. Tim Evans' case was revived, and they looked at it with fresh eyes. They looked at things like John being the only person in the flat with the key to the wash house. Yeah. So how could Tim have put the bodies in there? And, too, there was guys in the wash house. And there were guys in the wash room, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1966, after two official inquiries— Timothy Evans received a royal pardon. Nice. And in 2003, 37 years after he is hanged, his sister and half-sister received compensation for the miscarriage of justice. Nice. Quote, The conviction of Timothy Evans is now recognized to have been one of the most notorious, if not the most notorious, miscarriages of injustice. Yeah. There is no evidence to implicate Timothy Evans in the murder of his wife. She was most probably murdered by Christie. Right. quote. Yep. Today, the house at 10 Rillington Place has been raised, and there were people who still lived in that flat where the bodies were found on the first floor for a little bit. I read in one old newspaper, it was a quote from this man who was living there, and he said something to the effect of, you know, this is London. Show me a place where blood hasn't been spilled. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> right? Right. It was changed to Runton Close the year after John Christie was hanged. But the whole building came down in 1970. Okay. But that is the story of John Christie, the twisted, sick story and I hope his nose is still itching in hell. <laughs> but that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10 Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, Rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one 
and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. What a sick, twisted, demented, let me think of some other adjectives. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any words. You know, it's funny because I always get emails and people talk about it in the in-laws and outlaws that as soon as I start talking about somebody, they look up the killer. Yeah. They want to see what he looks like. I actually do that when I'm ready to edit everything. He, this guy actually looks, he doesn't look like a killer. He looks like the Dana Carvey character, Pistachio in Master of Disguise, if oh, yeah. you know who that is. Yeah, yeah. Just sort of nerdy with the glasses and the balding head and. Sure. Yeah. And he's about as smart as pistachio is as well. So there you have it. All right. Well, enough of him. (laughs) Enough Enough of of him. him. (laughs) Why don't we just move on to a little bless your heart. All right. Number one. Number one. Food fight. (gasps) You ever been in a food fight? Uh, No, I have not. Chris, Chris has been in a food fight. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's a whole other story. That's a, that's, a, that's a tale for another day. <laughs> well, when you hear about a food fight, you might think about an elementary school lunchroom. But today's dumb criminal is an elderly woman <gasps> who incited a food fight at a Golden Corral restaurant. Oh, I thought you were going to say a nursing home. <laughs> <laughs> no. But now she's in trouble with the law. The Golden Corral. Yep. According to a WITN, a 64-year-old woman intentionally bumped into another man in his 60s in line at a North Carolina restaurant. Sure enough, surveillance videos shows the woman cursing at the man, grabbing his shirt and shoving him against a wall and slapping him. What? Yep. She actually assaulted the man and another woman in line. Plates were thrown. One woman ended up on the floor and police were brought in to investigate. <laughs> there was only one steak left yeah. on the food line at the Golden Corral. Well, it turns out the woman went berserk because the man and woman she attacked had gone around her in line to oh. pay. Well, but they wanted to pay while she was filling up a drink. <laughs> Old Lady Anger Pants was jailed on two counts of assault and battery, all because she couldn't wait an extra minute to pay for her dinner. Don't cut line, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Note to self, <laughs> never go to a bingo parlor with this one. Makes me think like if she had a little cane, she'd be like. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Number two, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Okay. A Florida man wanted by cops tried to throw them off. By placing a big sign outside his house reading, Johnny Yates does not live here. <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> it didn't Move work. Move along. Yeah, it didn't work. Yates, 41, who was wanted by the Polk County Sheriff's Office on aggravated battery, false imprisonment, and tampering charges, was eventually locked up. Now, here's how it happened. Okay. Deputies showed up at Yates's Lakeland home around 2.45 p.m. on Saturday after getting a tip that he was holed up inside. Yeah. When the deputies arrived, they noticed a note written on a dry erase board in front of a window that said, Johnny Yates does not live here. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, a dry erase board never lied to us before. Should we believe it? They said, yeah. Enough was enough. And the surrender smoke, that's one of those little smoke bombs, was dispensed inside the house and four people exited the home. Oh, wow. Yeah, but no Johnny. All right. Did they not knock on the door first? (laughs) I'm sure they did. (laughs) Deputies called out some more, but still no response from Johnny. So a second helping of a surrender smoke was put inside the home to waft around a bit. That stuff is strong. Yeah, but yet still no response from Johnny. He doesn't live there. (laughs) (laughs) I guess he doesn't. Finally, deputies and a canine, Dexter, the dog, entered the house and located Johnny, who was hiding in a modified chest of drawers. All right. He's in the drawers? He's in the drawers. Okay. Yeah. Johnny was arrested and taken to jail. 
Sorry, Johnny. Yep, yep. The officer said the four people who were initially holed up in the house with Yates were also dealt with. Here's what they said. In regards to the four people who weren't cooperating with deputies, each one received a parting gift, a charge of resisting, and an all-expense-paid trip to Grady Judd's bed and breakfast. Polk County Sheriff Grady Judge, that is. Oh. <laughs> uh, how did they, I don't know how they survived two smoke bombs, but okay. <laughs> well, those four came out right away. They're like, hey. Oh, they came out right away. Yeah. Okay, okay. They just couldn't find Johnny. Yeah. Okay, number three. She didn't seem all that concerned about exposure. I have a bad feeling about this one. <laughs> oh, it just gets really bad. A Florida woman who was busted for having sex outside a hospital was pictured wearing a surgical mask in her mugshot amid the breakout of the coronavirus pandemic. Oh. Yeah. Anne-Marie Tucker, 45, was arrested earlier this month and charged with a misdemeanor of trespassing and exposure of sexual organs. As she... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and her partner was also Albert Singletary, 37. Yeah. Their genitals were allegedly on full display to the public during the tryst, which happened across from St. Anthony's Hospital in St. Oh Petersburg. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You said genitals. <laughs> I am a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> Tucker pled guilty to both counts and was released on March 10th for time served. Jail records show. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's very ironic that they're out having public sex in front of everybody out yeah. in the open, but yet she's going to wear a mask to her mugshot. Mm. Well, she didn't want to get sick. Yeah, yeah. She just wanted to have sex. Uh, well, there's your bless your hearts. <laughs> well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, yep. go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down venue. Mm-hmm. I can't. So I'm having a rough time. You can also suggest a case while you're there. Yes, you can. That's my amazing, funny husband out there. My face hurts right now. <laughs> That's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.